Hello, everyone, and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast where writers sit around, drink tasty beverages, and talk about writing, publishing, and the whole creative process. There will be rants and raves and opinions that may not agree but are lovingly delivered. We do not censor ourselves, so consider us PG-13. Today's gallery include Chaz Brenchley and me, Jeannie Warner. This is episode 171, Interview with Tammy Valdura. Welcome, Tammy. Hello. We are so glad to have them here. They're an author of queer fiction, short stories. You have a lot of pen names, too. We're so glad to have you to talk about all that you do and how that you do it for our people today. I'm delighted to be here. For instance, one can go out to your website, which is www.tammyveldura.com, and see you have three names right up the front. You have the author of Queer Fiction. You write as S.T. Lynn, which is, you call it, uplifting, sweet, and tropey fantasy, <laughs> which I think is fabulous, by the way. Anna Morgan, and I hear a rumor of a London keymaker. Tell us about why the different names, what they represent, how you chose them. Yeah, that's correct. So most of my, all of my pen names are split out in order to give my readers a clue about the content. So I started with Tammy Veldura and I realized when I started writing fairy tales that I wanted to split the name so that young adult readers wouldn't pick up my adult stuff by accident. Um, and so that's where the ST Lynn name came from. And then my mother, who reads everything that I write, uh, asked me if there was anything that was maybe not queer, but also still adult that she could share with her more conservative friends. And I was like, well, I have a pen name for that. And that's where Anna Morgan came from. Uh, that's adult fantasy, adult paranormal, but it's all straight romance all the way through. Okay. And then London Keymaker is where I focus uh, all of my gay romance. That's very spicy. Um, <laughs> so sometimes Amazon doesn't like how spicy we get. And so you can find London on Smashwords as well. Okay. I didn't realize that they had a censorship. When when I discovered that Amazon, you could find tentacle porn if you searched on it, I, <laughs> I presumed everything was out there and it was no holds barred. So how, how did you find out with Amazon there were holds barred? <laughs> well, I didn't come into writing uh, romance from, from Amazon's perspective. I came in through fan fiction. And when you're exploring fan fiction, you eventually end up on Reddit. And from Reddit, I found all kinds of topics that apparently Amazon just doesn't want to host, which is fine. They, you know, they can make the rules. But so I started writing these like very spicy short stories that are not, they're no longer available. But when I first came in, I was trying to figure out, you know, where are the lines that Amazon has drawn? And unhelpfully, Amazon does not tell you where the lines are. They <laughs> allow you to publish their book. And then sometimes that book disappears. Oh. And you don't really know what happened. But they, don't, they, don't, they don't come back to you and say, we've taken this book down because... They give you a very vague, you know, you should follow the guidelines, yeah. but the guidelines are like, you know, here's how to publish a book, not yeah. what's the content of the book. Right. Um, but so because, because I came in through side of sort of the, the very spicy erotica yeah. corner of things, I, I already know, you know, that Amazon has some things that they just don't want to host. But Smashwords has a lot of stuff that Amazon is not comfortable with. That's, you know, if for people who would like, 
the spicier things you can you can put them up on smashwords and they're very very nicely organized and so you can search for whatever you're looking for at whatever level of spice you like i yeah. think that's uh, where i read some hannibal lecter and will oh yes. mm slash fic oh yes <laughs> um, 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 dude, you, you suggested or implied at least that um you only put the spicy stuff on smashwords not entirely. So because Amazon has this line that they draw, there's a lot of stuff that I put up on Amazon because a lot of the audience is on Amazon. No, 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 but you don't put, I mean, the stuff you put up on Amazon, you don't automatically put it up on Smashwords as well. I do actually. Smashwords doesn't have, you know, spicy stuff exclusively. No. And so if it's, if it's on Amazon, it's also on Smash. Good. I wanted to admire that you are stunningly prolific. I mean, you, you seem to publish almost every month. I enjoy that you have, you're not just in spicy romance, although, you know, that's the fun stuff to talk about, but you have science fiction, you have fantasy, you have I do historical fantasy, it looked like. A, a lot of the beautiful things out there with queer characters and found families, which are, I think it's very topical. It's, it's hugely buzz at the moment, and I love it. Yeah. You're right that I've published every month for, for honestly a long time. Uh, the fifth of every month since the end of 2019. How? Exactly. Wait, wait, wait. It's COVID. How the hell have you managed to be this productive? So at the end of 2018, I went to a conference. Uh, unfortunately, that conference no longer exists. But at the time, it was the master class that uh, Dean Wesley Smith and oh, yeah. Christine Catherine Rush put on in Vegas. Yeah. And at that conference, Dean was telling everybody there, you know, I have this challenge. You pay him $600, which, whoo, that's a lot of money. And you are given a prompt every single week and you have to write a short story defined by Sifwa, which is 2,000 to 15,000 words, and you turn it into him by the end of the week. And if you can do that every week for a year, he would give you a free lifetime access to the teachable courses that Dean and Chris have, which is just a wealth of information that would take me years to get through. Yeah, absolutely. There was there was somebody that said you should write a story every week because it wasn't possible to write 52 bad stories in a single year. <laughs> you know what? That sounds like something Dean would say, to be honest. But so I came home from that conference and I told my husband about it. And he's like, I have $600. And like, and I was like, there's absolutely no way I'm doing this. And then he put down $600 and then I had to do it. Yes. So I wrote I wrote a short story every single week for a year and not all of them were bad. <laughs> well, there you go. I mean, it's so, impossible. I do believe it's impossible to write 52 bad short stories. Some of them were quite bad, I will admit, but sure. some of them were immediately published by small magazines. And so then at the end of 2019, I was like, I have all these stories. I need to start doing something with them. Yep. And that's when I started publishing every month. <laughs> Somebody I'm trying to, oh, gosh, I'm going to feel bad. And I'm going to write it up in a second. He wrote, a one, his challenge was to get himself to write, so he wrote 52, and he collected the best ones near stories I told myself. Patrick McLean, that's yes. right. Sorry, mm -hmm. Patrick. So I, I loved the fact that he did it, and I actually went out and bought the book because yeah. it was the idea of how do you kick yourself in the ass and make yourself do it. So I, I love that somebody kind of challenged you that way and said, right, you get your money back if you if you do that. That's genius. Yeah. And so he also has another uh, course, a challenge course for people who aren't really into short stories, where you do um, a novel every two months. Ooh, and then if awesome. you're a publisher, instead of a writer, you could also do the publishing challenge, which is where you publish a significant 
book every single month. And by significant book, he means a publication that's over 50,000 words. And so if that's a magazine, if that's an anthology, if that's a collection, okay. fill in the blank here. And, and what's the reward? If you, if you The reward is a one of the lifetime access. So that they have a teachable account yeah. where they have oh, so, so. just hours and hours of content and so you get lifetime access to to one of the columns of the the teachable course okay but but if you if you if you if you achieve that through the short story challenge then mm -hmm. there's nothing there's no extra for doing the novel challenge as well so he's got three different lifetime courses oh okay. uh, be, because they have so much teachable yes. content um, wow. and so you you can have access to the like the business track yeah. You can yep. have access to the craft track, and then there's there's another one that I've forgotten. Yep. Um, and so I, I completed the challenge, and I chose the the craft track. And so now they put out a new course, and it's usually five hundred dollars, and I get it for free. Yes, that's, that's that that is perfect. I, I I love the way they've. I hate the word monetized, but um, the way they have professionalized their practice. Yes. I, I don't think monetized is a dirty word. I love money. I'm, I'm very fond of money. <laughs> yeah, it's not It's not just about the money. It is. They have a lot of information and just a wealth of experience. And they're putting so much of that into those teachable yeah. courses. Like, yeah. I highly recommend everybody look at them. Yeah, we will, we will put links. Absolutely. And, and I, had a, I was sort of contemplating this. It isn't always easy to start, you know, end to end and do this. But like... You've actually done Kickstarters to do publishing. You've, you're, you're almost your own publishing company at this point, right? I am. And I've treated it like a business for a while, um, although Kickstarter is a new exploration this year. Uh, I, I grew up in a family that has like personal businesses. My mother ran her own business. And so when I was like eight and I told her I wanted to paint faces for a living, she responded with giving me printed out business cards from, you know, the computer that she made in an hour later. <laughs> and so like the concept of running my own business was ingrained in me from very young age. And so, yeah, I've been treating my publishing as a small business for many years now. Now, you have a line in there, Story Prism Studios. Is that the name of your publishing? That is the name of my publishing. Um, when when you do taxes and you tell the business, or rather you tell the IRS that you're running a business, they ask you what the name of it is. And so the only place you'll really see Story Prism Studios is if you actually, you know, obtain a printed book somewhere or if you look up my tax history. <laughs> it doesn't yeah. exist as an entity otherwise. That's fair. I mean, I think it's important to understand the tax laws. And you're the first person who's actually mentioned about taxes. And this is a real thing for writers of how it all works. So it is. And again, my mother was a, a tax professional. So it's it's something I'm very familiar with. My God, that'd be useful. Yes, <laughs> very useful. So how did you 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 just completed a Kickstarter, your make 100 paper and hardback queer fairy tales, which it's awesome. And I, even though it's a reprint of some old things, it's putting it new together in a beautiful way. Running a Kickstarter, talk to us a little bit about that process. How did you decide it? What is what is the process of this business part of it? One of the advantages of that write, you know, 52 short stories in a year under Dean is that now I have a lot of information and history from Dean and Chris and what they've done. Uh, and they have been running Kickstarters for years. They started doing it to do subscription drives for their magazines. And now they're doing it for releasing new fiction. And they put together actually a free teachable course 
they should pay me for shilling them all the time. Totally. Uh, I just, I can't get enough of what they do. But so they have a free teacher. Them on some we'll, we'll reach out. Yeah. We'll find them. <laughs> Give us their contact info. Oh, it's have. called Kickstarter 101. You don't you don't have to purchase it. It's totally free. Uh, you go through it. There's, there's several hours worth of content in that. And so combining that teachable course with actually uh, Russell Nolte's Kickstarter 101 book, between the two of those, I, I had a really good base for how to run my first Kickstarter. And then Russell, Russell also has a Facebook like group where you can hop in and ask questions mm-hmm. and he'll answer you directly if you have anything that he, you know, you need help with. And so I spent a good year watching Russell run his Kickstarters and, and the details of it, and then watching Chris and Dean run their Kickstarters in the detail. And, and I've been on Kickstarter, the platform, since like 2013 or something. I, I started supporting like small indie games mm-hmm. and things like that. Which, um, which is your favorite? Come on, let's pimp the favorite games <laughs> Oh my God, the favorite game. I don't even know. I, I supported I a little I tiny game. It's not even out yet. I'll I have to look up some raccoon, spy, um, raccoon Sky Pirates. Plus, <laughs> I was involved with Double Critical, did our Adventures of Oz back there. And oh my God, if anybody wants to hear about the horror of fulfilling through Amazon and Kickstarter, <laughs> I have a sad symphony I can tell people. Oh my God. So, oh my gosh, it, it can get very very complicated and there's more than one kickstarter that i've backed where uh you know three years later i'm still getting like one update a year and i i don't have the thing that i backed and like you know going in they warn you a lot that it's not a pre-order system it's it's an investment system it is Um, i can i take a moment and pimp out there to say okay you're not really backing hasbro to use an online big adventure that just happened recently with ogl you're sometimes backing groups that are like people like Tammy here or organizations of like five or six human beings that may all sit in their living rooms and they're trying to produce something for you. So try to be gentle people. <laughs> yeah. A lot of, a lot of your um, listeners have probably heard of like Brandon Sanderson ran a Kickstarter yes. and yes. earned what $43 million because yes. he's just crazy. And, and, you know, my Kickstarter, I asked for $300. I and got three thousand. We saw. Yeah, uh, yeah. And I, I made, I made two thousand and like three, three thousand, two thousand. I don't even know. Oh, oh my second. gosh, it was. I have an important question out of that. Yes, go ahead. Your covers are fucking beautiful, man. I mean, oh my gosh, I cannot take yourself? credit. My cover oh. artist. Is yeah, tell just me about- Amazing, tell, tell 3,000, you're correct. Of your cover artist there. <laughs> I don't know if you can, you know, honestly, I don't even think she has a website. Uh, her name is Jenna Fowler. And she is just worth her weight in gold twice over. She did Cinderella, Cinderella's cover when I released it back in 2016. That was the cover that she did. And like, I, I, she, I, she somehow, she has the ability to just reach inside my brain and <laughs> pull out what, is like supposed to be the essence of the, the story. Like, I don't know how she does it. And so, you know, obviously I had to go back to her for the second no. one and the third one. And and I swear the first couple of reviews I get, I got on Cinderella. Like, so, so when you first release a book, the first couple of the views are really key because they tell people, you know, what the book is about, what people really enjoyed. And the first couple of reviews I got on Cinderella were, this cover is stunning. Like that doesn't help me about the book, but I know, I know it is. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I, I, going back a little to the nasty money, th- you you asked for three hundred dollars. 
yes. on, on Kickstarter and you got 3,000. I did. Uh, but could you have done everything that you set out to do on 300? Because that doesn't seem like a lot of money at all. It's not, it's not a lot of money. It's and it's partly because I did a lot of research, so much research. Yeah. So uh, yes, I could have done what I needed to do with just $300, which is why my, my ask was so low, because yeah. I, I didn't actually need the $3,000, although that is very helpful for what <laughs> I'm planning on next. But, but uh, you're a two-income family. There are many authors out there that are a one-income family that might- absolutely need that extra <laughs> absolutely yeah and so the um the only thing that i really needed the cash for was to get the the shipping covered for these hardbacks and paperbacks for the people that wanted them and right. so because putting together so i went through a print on demand service that's mm -hmm. uh, actually based out in the uk and it's called bookvault.app app and uh they can print a book, a very nice, lovely book for like three or four pounds and then ship it pretty much globally for $12 or less, unless it's going to like Guam. Guam was very expensive, but, <laughs> but most of the world, $12 or less. And so if I could get people to cover their own shipping, yeah. I could send a book almost anywhere. Yeah. We, we had a brief talk with online a previous episode, Emmy Nordstrom Higdon, who had so much to say on the topic of supply chains because people have not realized that through all of this, how hard it is to get, where is the paper? Where are things being printed? Where are things gonna be done? I mean, I guess it helps with the UK because they're they're closer to the Czech Republic where apparently a printing industry has grown up, but. Oh man. It, I, it is more of a challenge than people think to get a Kickstarter just finished and yeah. I've already run into two supply chain issues uh -huh. before yeah. before it even finished I got um my my package was held up in a strike for the shipping company so and it, it got delivered somewhere and and so I I didn't have my proof copies to take pictures of to show people and so my Kickstarter launched and I didn't have books to show anybody and so thankfully they showed up before the Kickstarter finished but then immediately after that there there was some kind of hack of like the UK delivery like the Royal Mail delivery system got hacked or something I don't know hopefully that's resolved before I need to order more books I, I want to send this message out to you who have backed anything that involves paper right now in Kickstarter. So this is a message to you listeners. Right now, it is a great big old clusterfuck. Try to be gentle. Yeah. I mean, the only thing that we owe you Kickstarter people is to say, we owe you frequently, it is still fucked. I'm sorry, it's two weeks <laughs> later. It is still fucked. I'm sorry, it's a month later. I don't know when this is going to get fixed. I'm still fucked. And yeah. without saying fucked a lot, sorry, you yeah. know, it's the one. <laughs> It's the one, <laughs> but, but it is harder. So try to be gentle and remember that the people on the other start of your Kickstarter are just trying to help you and be creative and make a living at it. So be gentle. It's totally out of my control. Like, like the, somebody hacked the Royal Mail. Like, really? What am I going to do about that? Yeah, absolutely. I, 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 you will have gathered from my accent that I am not a native Californian. It's shocking. Um, <laughs> I, um, I, when, I, when I emigrated here, um, there were all kinds of complications um, about visas and stuff, which we need. Oh, I'm sure. So my 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 things, the stuff I was shipping, my 115 boxes of books and five boxes of other stuff, which is not an exaggeration. That's actually the count. <laughs> um, yeah, it it languished in a warehouse in the UK for the better part of a year, 
and then we finally got things sorted out and they shipped it and the ship had come all the way around everywhere and was heading for Los Angeles and Los Angeles went on strike. Yes. <laughs> um, and, and so rather than wait for people to settle the LA strike, um, the ship docked in Mexico instead. Oh, because um, that's then, useful. Yes, right. useful. Um, so we had to we had to figure out a way to get my stuff from Mexico over another border. Over another border, <laughs> absolutely. That doesn't add any complication whatsoever. No, not no. at all. Um, <laughs> so, Tammy, I couldn't help but notice when I go to your website, you have a large number of convenient breaks, and you've talked a little bit about yes, you've tried this fifty-two, but. You, you can't just say, right, I'm going to write a story every week. How do you plan out your books? Tell me a little bit about, we, we have, for instance, our friend Raymond Miller, who's a Scrivener fan. How do you plan a book? How do you plan a story? What is your mechanism for, for getting this at the speed and volume that is so beautiful? Uh, so I, I would love to show you a little bit behind the curtain, but for anybody who wants to like keep the majesty of like, the writing is magic and art. They should they should just turn away now because my process is very structured. <laughs> I I love structure myself. It helps me improve. So tell me about your structure. You uh, I am in our also, pre talk when we were first chatting online about this. Uh, you mentioned the snowflake system. Tell us a story about snowflakes. I would love to. Uh, so I'm also a Scrivener fan. I I love how detailed I can get into Scrivener and and interlink things and basically create my own Wikipedia. And so I I maintain very extensive like character sheets and details and outlines and and even lists of common beats that should be found in a given genre of story. So for example, the romance story has several beats. You have to have the meet cute where the two you know, main characters come together for the first time. And then you definitely have to have you know, the dark night of the soul where they can't possibly be together and how are you gonna make it happen at the end? And without those two things, you don't have the like lovely romantic getting together at the very end where everybody's happily ever after. You have to have a happily ever after, right? <laughs> and so there's a couple of more beats that are, you know, involved in the structure of a romance that are very common. Uh, and so I, I just have a list of those. I say, Timmy, I like to choose the word beats, but we haven't had somebody talk about that a little bit more. We've had a lot of different descriptions. So unravel for a little bit what you mean by beats. So I highly recommend any authors who haven't already go pick up the book, Save the Cat. So yeah, okay, Save the Cat writes a novel specifically. Um, if you look up just Save the Cat, you're gonna get the screenwriting version, which is very similar. But Save the Cat writes a novel, is uh, kind of a general overview of like the structure you're going to need to put together a book and like, you know, the highs that you have and the lows that you need to contrast and, and how you, you kind of bring things to a close. And so the, the, that's where I got the term uh, genre beat, but it's, uh, it's also found in the more recent book, The Anatomy of Genre, which I still haven't read all the way through, but it's very, very good and I highly recommend it. I have, um, a, I have a, a hard question to ask you. Yes. It is a trope that I kept finding, because I read a lot of Zoe Chant because I, I, I adore Ellen Millian and C.E. Murphy and other people, Elva Birch, that I'll write for Zoe Chant as the same writer. But I, I get frustrated with other people outside in different romance genres that do the I'm just not worthy of love. Mm. And while I, res mm. I respect that as a neurodivergent person with brain weasels trope, 
<laughs> I'd kind of like to have a few more of the confident women. Yeah, show me that you're this tall and can get on this ride and hold your own sort of thing. Of course, I'm worthy to be loved. Show me that you're worthy of me, of my time. Uh, you well, it doesn't have a woman as the main character, but you may enjoy my novella, the um, uh, drag queen wedding. Ice Drag Queen Wedding. It's actually a prequel to my science fiction story, Queenships, which uh, it, it, it's an enemies to lovers. And so both of the main characters are very arrogant about the fact that they Excellent. don't need anybody. And, okay. and yeah. um, um, so, so, I mean, do you, do you approach writing a book thinking, what tropes shall I use in this novel? Absolutely. Um, I don't know really how to develop a character if I don't know what their conflict is going to be. And so the, the trope is really going to define the conflict for me. It's going to define both the internal conflict and the relationship between the two main characters or three I'm, or four. I'm, I'm fascinated by this because uh, yeah, this is so contrary to my own method. I mean, I, he's a I, pantser. I'm a pantser. Oh, I'm, man, I can't I, do it. I write myself into a corner. Yeah, I've written 50 plus novels over. 50 plus years. And, and I never once have I sat down to think about tropes or beats or any of this. I just write the book. And yeah, other people's, you know, these, these I kind of envy in a way, this, this organizational approach. You wouldn't if you could see my outline. There's, there's so much involved in the outline. You'd just be like, nope, that's not happening. <laughs> no, I, I gotta say this would be, I mean, I wrote I read, rather, Rachel Aaron's book, 2000 to 10,000, Writing Better of More of What You Love. And, and mm. Rachel recommended recommended the outline. Yeah. And there's part of it as I hit the end of it and do a thousand and one query letters of, I've now written a synopsis of my book in one sentence, 10 sentences, yeah. five sentences, yeah. three pages, whatever yeah. it is. Oh, so, man, that's a lot of work. I don't, I don't necessarily do that. It's, well, it's, you're not submitting, you're publishing. Yeah, but it's like your methodology would make some of that easier because you've kind of already written the outline of what's going to happen in each chapter. So that's not so hard to come up with a synopsis of the book at the end, right? So that's that's quite true, actually. And so the the book that I'm writing right now, uh, the novella that has turned itself into a novel, despite my best efforts, um, is a romance first. But it's also like a science fiction action adventure story. And so there's there's a certain set of beats that need I need to hit for the romance. You know, I need to have the meet cute. I need to have all of the like falling in love process, right? And so I have a list of those. But then an action adventure story has a bad guy and he probably has henchmen and we need to confront the bad guy and lose, but then we need to confront the bad guy and win. And so there's a couple of beats for the adventure story. And what I did was I mashed those two lists together. And that gave me about 10, maybe 13 scenes just defined by the beats alone. I, at this point, I don't have characters. I don't have a plot even. I don't have anything, but I know what needs to happen in every scene. Your jazz is melting into a little puddle and rocking. See, right I told you, you I told you. It. And so I write all these beats out, write my 13 or so ideas. I have them on bullet points. Like at this point, that's all it's looking like. And then I start deciding, you know, okay, this, so this book that I'm writing right now, it's an alien romance. And so I need to figure out what my aliens look like. And I need to figure out, you know, the situation where they're going to run into humans to fall in love. And so that's where all of my tropes come in. Alien romance is a trope on its own. And I decided with I mean there, there was no like discovery involved here I just I just decided that I was going to write a military uh group 
like oh. a squad of military men in the army. And so each of them was going to fall for a different alien <laughs> over the course of the book. And then that, or, or rather over the course of the series. And I was like, okay, oh. wait, that means I have a series. Yeah. And I, how many books are going to be in the series? And then again, like this wasn't, you know, the, the, the spirit of the story rising in me or anything. I, I oh. looked at my bookshelf and I saw that there was an array of books that were in rainbow order and I counted the colors of the rainbow. I added black and white to the end. And I said, nine, we're going to have nine books. Each <laughs> alien is going to be a different color because I said so. And the last one should be black. He's going to be the leader because you can't do the leader at the front of the series. So, like, this is all very like clinical decision-making, yeah. you know, and that's how I ended up with a nine book series that I'm now writing just because there's yeah. nine colors. If you go from our Roy G. Biv with Wait white a second. No, 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 this is very militaristic. I'm, yes. I'm a child yes. of, of things. I can say a squad. Usually they say has three to four plus a leader. So they say four to five. So that's a squad. A platoon is two squads. You basically just wrote platoon in a slightly less, you know, <laughs> Vietnamese way. <laughs> no, yeah, exactly. So I, I basically I have eight people. I have the squad leader that makes nine. And so everybody's gonna and then I was like, but we need some drama, right? And so actually, I put on a 10th alien. And oh. I had him die in like oh, the no. second scene of the first book. And I was like, now we have we have a reason that the aliens are crash landing on Earth. It's because everybody's gonna die. And so like, fall in love or die is like my wow. favorite trope. Uh, like just oh my god Liz, did you see down. the lobster <laughs> i have not no oh you must it is see i, I took up. a friend to see the lobster and it was supposed to be kind of like they said a dark rom-com <laughs> um i'm not quite sure where they got off calling it a comedy <laughs> you know it's like this is a, a dystopian is world a 2015 where... film yeah yeah. yeah, I mean, I it has all the best actors in it, as you know, but the question is, when you go in there, it's like the, okay, you don't have a partner. Clearly, you're not a responsible citizen if you're not in a partnership. Oh, no. This is your last chance, and if you don't fall in love in our little camp here, we're going to turn you into a lobster. What kind of lobster? I mean, I'm sorry, we're going to turn you into a, an animal. What kind of animal do you want to be? And the man picks lobster. And so it's about the lobster. And it is. Yeah. Okay. I'm on the Wikipedia. You're all obliged to find a romantic partner in 45 days or else be transformed into animals. Yeah. No, this is exactly my kind of story. Like, you must fall in love or you'll die. Like, those are the only two options. Like, just my favorite. We trip. walked out of there and my friend Trish looked at me and said, What? Did you just have me watch? <laughs> I, I don't blame her. I do not blame her. <laughs> <laughs> and but, but it was a little bit, I'm like, we, we, we went and had a glass of wine because it was a sort of movie that demands a glass of, yeah, glass of wine after that. Absolutely. I said, okay, I pieced it out. By the fact that it has narration, I'm, this isn't spoilers, by the fact that it has narration and certain verbal cues, you have to infer that it all works out okay. You just don't get to see the happy ending. <laughs> Which means it's not a romance because remember, happy ending is required. Infer. A happy ending, oh, and that's so. It's it's European. I can't say anything more. Than that. <laughs> oh gosh, that's so funny. I'm gonna have to look this up and, and find a copy. It's got Colin Farrell in it. <laughs> what are you working on now? 
so I'm working on my aliens must fall in love or die, right? They, they have too much magic and it's going to consume them in fire. And if they don't find their soulmate, which is obviously one of the army guys that they crash land and, and meet on earth, then, uh, then they're just, they're going to go up in flames and die. And so of course they have to fall in love while fighting off the demons from the void, which is the action adventure plot. So you publish every month. I do. How much do you actually write in a month? Well, back when I was doing the challenge, it yeah. was about it was about four thousand to five thousand words a week, which mm -hmm. is five, ten, fifteen, twenty. Mm -hmm. If you've got a four week month, yep. fifteen to twenty a month. Um, I have tapered down since then, and. Um, I'm currently maintaining the monthly publication by virtue of just having so much material in advance. Right. Yeah. And then some of those stories that went off to be published in like short story or sorry, in, in magazines and anthologies and things, yep. um, they had exclusivity periods for anywhere from three to six months. And so once that was released, I'm able to then yep. publish the, the work on my own. And so I'm still, I'm still writing, but I'm not writing quite as quickly anymore. What, I, what suspect, tools, I was going to ask what tools you use to find where to submit. Do you use a Duotrope or which, which of the services do you use? Oh, so I like Duotrope. Um, and, but honestly, honestly, at this point, most of the, most of the requests come to me directly. Um, I'm in a couple of different professional groups where the level of professional is a bunch of authors, but also a bunch of editors who run their own magazines. And so occasionally the editors will pop into the professional group and post, you know, I'm looking for here, you know, here's the, here's the request, here's the deadline, here's the, uh, the length of time. And so um, currently there's one of my favorite editors who has, I believe posted this publicly. Let me go look. Uh, yeah, okay, Camden Park Press is a, um, a small press and the editor here, Lynn, she is currently looking for classic monsters in historical settings. So like your werewolves and vampires and things, but pre like 1800. Oh, I don't know. Wasn't there a great Philippines vampire that ripped in half and the bottom stood in a closet and the top half oh my gosh night, uh, drinking the blood of babies i mean there's some really cool historic vampires in the globe or is there it are yeah and, and so she's looking specifically like she calls out vampires and, and werewolves and stuff but she's looking specifically for like what are the what are the historical monsters globally like, like like if you went to shanghai like what would the historical monster be in in that area that that they've done and so she's like she wants kind of globe trotting monsters but it has to be set pre 1800s and so i happen to have a series of novellas and short stories um that are set during the age of sail and it is a paranormal world there are like ghosts and spirits wandering around which is you know you've got to deal with all of these things and so i'm thinking about writing a story in my age of sale series to give to her i think that's great well we we will put links to the fascinating things we discussed during this episode on our website which is www.writersdrinkingcoffee.com tammy thank you this was fantastically fun yes it was and, and we're totally getting you back. Yeah, I'm afraid we, you might we, have to we come need, back. We, we need to talk more. We really do. There is a lot to talk about. So much. You've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. 
Our main web support magic is brought to you by Deirdre Schween, and our sound engineers and backup web spiders are David Welsh and John Schmidt. Our intro music is Pretty Made Milking a Cow, and our exit music is Breakfast with the Morning Person, both by Michael Engberg. These are available on manyhatsmusic.com. Our podcast sponsors are Jackal Designs, The Bean Scene, Arm Street in Ukraine, and Honorable Mention to wherever you like to have wine or coffee. And hey, thanks for listening. <laughs> Tammy, that was just wonderful. Thank you so much.